my foot got trapped in it, and then I did like a backflip off of it and broke my foot. I think we were feeding our birds one time, and they never knew what the cave was haunted, but I found it. It's time for the Appleseed, where great stories change your world. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and we're excited to bring you some great stories today. In this hour, we're thinking about the need that every person has to know just how precious they are to someone. This is a time in the world when it's easy to feel a little lost, a little alone. And sometimes when we look into our own hearts, we find not only things we like best about ourselves, but also things we like least about ourselves. And it's easy to focus on those things sometimes. And in this hour, we're going to hear a story about a grandson and a grandma, both of whom suffer from some of the insecurities and fears and difficulties that all of us have and who find in each other a reminder of how precious a person can be to another person. If you've ever heard words like these, Nana, your lap is perfect. Or longed to hear words like those, You'll enjoy that story from Kim Whitecamp. And we'll hear a story about a time in my life when I felt that I was important to someone. And oddly, it was at a time when no one was around at all. That's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. And in an hour in which we're exploring the feeling of security and hope that comes from trusting that someone accepts and loves you just as you are, We're going to turn the tables and bring you an outer space mystery in which no one can be trusted even to be who they say they are, let alone to accept and love you for who you are. It's a story filled with moments like this. Elio! Elio, can you hear us from in here? (laughs) I can hear everything. It's an original radio drama cooked up in our secret lab, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And we'll begin today with a story by the terrific Ohio storyteller Kim Whitecamp. Kim is waiting along with our terrific studio audience in the Appleseed Performance Studio. Let's join her, shall we? So when I was a little girl, I was so skinny. My dad said if I stood sideways and stuck out my tongue, I'd look like a zipper. (laughs) Sadly, that is not the case any longer. I can only liken what has begun to happen to be like unbaked Betty Crocker cake batter just sliding into every corner of the pan. Nobody prepared me for this. I used to have long red hair that I could reach up and pull. It was so long and um, it's turned naturally blonde over the years. (laughs) And... (laughs) And uh, I, uh, oh, I, I had no clue. Nobody prepared me. They didn't prepare me for my hair to get thinner. They didn't prepare me for acne at the age of 45, 50. They never prepared me for that. And they never prepared me for hot flashes. Hot flashes are horrific. Your day is coming. It is coming. So learn. This is your class, Okay. I was in Walhalla, South Carolina in a beautiful theater. There was about 400 people. I'm on stage and I did this piece called Penny Candy Love. And I was singing the song that goes with it. The audience was with me. It was a precious moment. And as I'm playing and singing, I felt a heat emanate from within my body and push out every single pore. I kept playing and I was thinking to myself, I think that I'm having a heart attack. I, I, I think I might be having a heart attack. And as I'm trying to sing this song and finish, because I wanted the check, as I said, you know, they can pick me up and take me to the hospital later. I need to finish the gig. And as I'm singing, my glasses were sliding down my face and I'm singing and pushing them up and the sweat's coming out and my glasses are falling down. And then I felt trickles of water down my back. And I thought, I know. It's horrible. This young woman just looked at me like, oh my gosh. See, it's good that I'm telling you this. So you're not shocked. I didn't know what it was. And when I finished that song, I thought I might as well dress it because there's no way that these people didn't see what was happening to me. I was drenched. And I looked out at the audience and I said, hey, I said, is it hot in here? Silence. But one woman in the balcony said, welcome to the sisterhood. (laughs) 
my first hot flash in front of 400 strangers. What a lovely thing. But nobody prepared me for that. And my, I spent 20 years working with adjudicated and at-risk youth. And I said to the girls all the time, the young ladies, I said, external beauty cannot compare to internal loveliness. I said that over and over and over. External beauty cannot compare to internal loveliness. And I would push them to be as lovely internally as they could be. And then I found myself in my 50s, early 50s, as this was happening to me, all of these changes, I found myself judging myself by a yardstick created by others. Here's how it works. They find a woman that is so rare, they have to pay her millions of dollars. They then bring that woman in and they give her a team of people to help her dress. There's somebody that handles the clothing, somebody that handles the shoes. There's somebody that handles the makeup and they use like $500 blushes and $200 mascaras. Then they have somebody that does her hair. There's someone that washes it, styles it, somebody that cuts it, and they pay them thousands of dollars. They bring her in, they give her this team. After she's ready, they put her in front of lights that cost $10,000. Then there's a man with a $3,000 camera with a long lens, and he takes 6,000 pictures. Out of those 6,000 pictures, there's five that work. Those go to a guy who's sitting in a cubicle wearing a Mario Brothers t-shirt drinking Mountain Dew. <laughs> he then takes those pictures into his program, whether you know, whatever program that is for editing, and then he adds some hair in that thin spot, and then he brings in the hips a little. And then he takes off that little scar she got when she was on the playground as a little girl. And when he's done fixing her up and making her look even more perfect, they put that on TV, billboards, magazines, and they tell our young women or older women that this is the yardstick by which you should measure yourself. They are incorrect. Sidebar, it's not just the ladies that deal with this. There's pictures of men in magazines and billboards and on TV. And I know that men deal with this because I've sat in my little closet makeup area and I'll be fixing my makeup and my husband knows that if he walks in and I'm doing anything like pulling back my skin, he knows to make a, a quick exit because no matter what question I ask, the answer will be wrong that he gives me. But I've been in there before and he didn't know it. And I'd look up and I'd see him walk in and he'd catch himself in the mirror and he'd turn and he puts his shoulders back and he sucks it in a little and turns sideways. And I thought, oh my gosh, they deal with it too. Nobody prepares us for this thing. And I do feel like it may be particularly worse for us because we sweat through it without wanting to. We lose hair and it goes shorter. This, I've cut my hair short like this in the back because I needed a ventilation system. <laughs> well, I finally thought to myself, this is ridiculous. What are you doing to yourself? I found myself standing in aisles looking at pots of cream that promised would get rid of this and this. I found myself looking at shampoos that said if I wore it, and I mean I washed with it, that I'd draw men from miles away. I, I found myself looking through my daughter's magazines trying to figure out how can I get that back? How can I get that back? How can I get that back? And I finally thought to myself, what are you doing to yourself? You are absolutely, this is exactly what you've taught those young ladies for 20 years not to do. And so I decided to make some changes. I decided to just start being more active for various reasons that aren't important to the story. I cannot swing or lift. <laughs> and so I thought, well, maybe I could kayak because kayak, you're sitting. That's good. That's almost as good as bowling. You put your fingers in a ball and eat a Slurpee. But uh, you sit and then you row. And I think I, I think I can row and not hurt anything that I have issues with from prior sports playing. And so I began kayaking. I got a red perception kayak. I love it. And everyone wants to be my partner. When we go out, we go out in twos. There's six of us and we go out in sets of twos. And everyone's like, I'll be Kim's partner. No, I'll be your partner. This Well, you were her partner. And they all want to be my partner because when this bum right here, here, goes into that kayak. It makes an airtight seal and ain't no water getting in there. And they know they can keep their iPhone and food in my kayak. <laughs> and it's not going to, and it's not going to get wet. 
I'll take it any way I can get it. I also started hiking my dog, and I put a, a I had a big uh, St. Bernard German Shepherd, and I got him a service coat, and we'd hike up mountains, and I just started to try to do better. And I stopped making New Year's resolutions that I knew that I would break, and I started instead adopting mottos that I would apply to my life for that year. The first motto I adopted was, if you can't lose it, decorate it. <laughs> the motto last year was, rich foods, fatty foods, sugary foods are our destiny, for they too shape our ends. <laughs> well, it was during this time that my grandson was over, and he was running somewhere, and I snatched him up, and I said, baby, come sit in Nana's lap for a minute. And he said, Nana. He said, I'm not a baby anymore. And I said, I know that. I said, but you're getting so tall that soon I won't be able to hold you. Just come sit in my lap. Well, he sat in my lap, and I said, well, lay back, and let me just hold you a little. And he said, Nana, I'm not a baby. And I said, okay. I said, but I really just want to hold you a little bit, honey, because you're getting so big. He's the tallest one in his class. So he laid back into the crook of my arm, and I could feel his weight relax into me. And he began to kind of get a little drowsy as I rubbed his cheek and said, you're my sweet cakes, baby. Do you know that? You're my sweet cakes. His lids got heavy and closed, and I just drank him in. If you're a grandparent, you fully understand that. And suddenly his eyes popped open, and he said, Nana? I said, what, baby? He said, your lap is perfect. <laughs> I said, you know what? I said, that is so precious. And I thought from the mouth of an innocent child in a time that I needed to hear it, I was so grateful, and I put him on the couch, and I said, I'll be right back. You stay here, because I'm not done with you yet. And I went down the hall to my office, sat down, and I pulled out the left-hand drawer, and I got out my will. <laughs> He's getting it all. <laughs> but I sat there holding him, and my mind went to the laps that had held me over the years. Well, the first lap I thought of, of course, was my mama. My mama is maybe 95 pounds wet. You could floss with her. She's a tiny little thing. I remember one time we were headed to church, and we were headed down the hill towards the house. I mean, down the hill behind the house to the driveway to the car. And her foot caught the lip of the macadam of the blacktop of the driveway. And when she, she went falling forward in a full face plant, and I reached out, and I grabbed her by the back of her little pink dress and lifted her back up and put her down. That's how little my mom is. I was seven years old. <laughs> and sitting in my mom's lap was like sitting on a futon. You felt every bone and bar that held that woman together. <laughs> but I didn't seek out my mother's lap because it was comfortable. I sought it out because it was comforting. And it amazed me as a kid and then a teen as a young woman that that, that little lady, that tiny woman, could put the weight of poverty and then success, she dragged us into success. We sold the farm, my dad bought Arco stations, our whole life changed as he became a business owner. She put the weight of the loss of children, she put the weight of cancer on her back, that small woman, and I remember being amazed watching her carry the weight of our family forward, pushing my dad forward in his success, pushing us children to do more and to strive harder. It amazed me that a woman that small could do that, and now that she's bent by time and thin like lace. She still wraps her crepe paper arms around me. I can feel the hollowness of time inside of her. And when she holds me, I still feel that amazing strength. And that's my mama's lap. Now, the other lap that I think about is my father's lap. Two very different memories of my father's lap. The first memory I have is this. My dad would call, and he loved to say he worked from can't see to can't see. I work from can't see to can't see. You know, he's a business owner. He was a farmer. They work from can't see to can't see, dark to dark, in case you don't know what that means. And then can't see to can't see as a business owner, you know. And he would call my mom, and he'd say, Lenny, I'm on my way home. And she'd put the avocado green phone back in the cradle, and she would get all the leftovers out of the refrigerator because we did not have microwaves then. And she would start to reheat it slowly. 
And then she'd go into the bedroom, into her bathroom, and she would put on a lavender house gown that had buttons down the top, and it had a white cotton eyelet around the, the top around her neck. And then she'd brush out her long brown hair and put in rhinestone bobby pins. And then she'd pull out the lipstick sample, samples in the little mint green containers that my aunt sold lipstick and Avon and stuff. And she'd open it and she'd swipe and dab, pucker and blend. And then she'd get out a timeless perfume sample packet and dot it. And she'd put it back in because it's good for three uses, you know. And then she would go out and stand at the stove, looking real cute, you know. And I'd sit underneath the bar in the kitchen because I'd hear my dad come home. And he'd come up the steps and the door would open and he'd start singing completely off key. Hey, good looking, what you got cooking for me? And my mom would just laugh and my dad would go over and when he walked by, I could smell grease from the gas station and Old Spice. And he'd walk up behind her and he'd potch her on the bum. That's what we say in Amish country. He'd potch her on the bum and she'd say, Spike, stop that. The kids are watching. And he'd say, but Lena, you look good. And I'd pop out from under that bar and I'd say, she did not look like that 10 minutes ago. And then while my mom got dinner ready, my dad would go into the little area where there was a rocking chair that was actually where my mom sat. And he'd say, Kimmy, come on in here. <clears throat> he would take turns with my sister and I, hearing about our day, and then he'd put me on his lap and keep me on the edge of his knee. And this particular memory I had holding my grandson, I, I remember it so clearly. And he'd rock really fast. And he'd sing, you're my sunshine, my only sunshine. You made me happy when skies are gray. And then he'd shove me off and go, you know, I love you, right? And I'm like, so confusing. What was that? <laughs> and he always had something lovely to say, like, um, do you have goals, Kimmy? And I'd be thinking, I'm in fifth grade. My goal was to not eat paste in art class. Like, what? what? And he'd say, a dream is just, uh, a goal is just a dream pulled to earth. A goal is just a dream pulled to earth. You need to have some goals. Or he'd say, take care of the pennies and the dollars will handle themselves. I love that one. The wisdom of my father's lap. Now, I said I had two memories. The other memory was being asked to lay over his lap so a SWAT could be administered. Now, I'm not here to discuss whether that's good child rearing. It's too late for me. Let it go. <laughs> that's my dad's lap. You know, it's an interesting thing because for years, centuries, man has tried to duplicate, replicate the perfection of the lap, and we have failed. There's no chair that'll wrap its wooden arms around you and speak hope into your spirit. There's no couch with perfectly placed pillows of love that echo the heartbeat there's no settee that'll push back a wisp of hair, dry a tear, and kiss you on the crown. The first seat of dignitaries and presidents was a lap. The first throne of kings was a lap. Some of the first creative thoughts of every neuroscientist, poet, burger flipper, Walmart greeter, teacher, psychologist, garbage collector, happened in a lap. I looked down at my grandson, and I said, baby, that is the sweetest thing that anybody has ever said to me. And I sang to him. When I awoke 
And I cry You are my sunshine My only sunshine You make me happy oh, When skies are gray You'll never know, dear Just how much I love you Kim Whitecamp with a story to give you a little insight into how your grandma might feel and a reminder that to someone, you are precious. In a moment, a little talk back around the desk about the story we just heard and an entry in the Radio Family Journal. It's coming up. I'm Sam Payne. We just enjoyed a great story from the Ohio storyteller Kim Whitecamp in the Appleseed Performance Studio, a story called The Lap. And after hearing a great story like that, we're gathered here. It's time for a little studio talk back. And around the desk with me are a couple of friends, Trent Horton, one of our assistant producers. Trent, it's great to have you with me. It's always good to be here, Sam. And, uh, of course, we've also got the Appleseed producer, uh, Brian Tanner. Brian, thanks for joining me. Yes. It's so easy to get to to get down about the things you don't like about yourself, you know? And what helps is understanding just how precious you are to another person. That's kind of where I am after hearing that story. Brian, where are you? I don't know that I have many lap-sitting memories, but what I do have are memories of back rubs. <laughs> like, I'm such <laughs> a sucker for a good back rub. And when I was a kid— just every week at church, I knew that if I just leaned my body at the right angle and I was sitting next to my mom, I, I a, a great back rub would be in store. <laughs> and I would just mm, sit there and soak it up. It was so great. And now with my own kids when we're at church, that's what I love to do. And my daughter especially, uh, my little six-year-old daughter, if I stop, she will grab my hand and she'll put it back on her back, you know? <laughs> and if I'm not doing it the speed or the area that she wants, she'll grab my hand and she'll take it to the place where she wants it and she'll do it the <laughs> speed that she likes it <laughs> to, to let me know. So just like I loved my back rubs from my mom, she loves the ones from me, and it just makes us feel, like, connected and, and we're part of this family together. And that contact is important, and for that to have become kind of a— uh, an intergenerational thing is 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 kind of cool. Yeah, right? yeah. Trent, where were you as you heard that story? I mean, we were talking earlier um, about how sometimes we don't realize that we should tell people how we feel more often. We think that they know. Yeah. Um. And it, and it brings to mind the moments when people have told me how they feel about me and mm. how much I appreciate those moments. Because, you know, we get caught up in in our thoughts and in our daily lives and we don't often think that, you know, we're valued. But sometimes yeah. just that little gentle reminder is is a great pick-me-up in a, in a bad week or something. Thinking back to the story that we heard from Kim, you know, it's so important to know how precious we are to someone just as we are. Uh, it, I think it's especially important to, to know that, to learn that during those times in your life when you're really kind of trying to figure out who you are. And today's Radio Family Journal entry is from just such a time in my life. Here it is. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. I was trying to figure out who I was in junior high and high school. There's nothing unusual about that, right? And one day, one really beautiful spring day during that time, I decide that I'm going to go on a long kind of thinky walk. I lived back then in a little town, and there were walks to take right around my house, filled with quiet streets and neighbors and dogs and trees. These were the walks of my elementary school life, and believe me, I took them and took them and took them. 
But I wasn't in elementary school anymore. And somehow that meant that today, when I got to the end of my street, I kept going. When I got to the end of my neighborhood, I kept going. I got to the end of the pavement even, and I kept going toward the mountains. I walked out onto a plateau at the foot of the mountain slope. People in town called that plateau the high bench. Way out on the bench, I turned around and looked back at my town, small in the distance. No one around but me and my thoughts. And while I stood there, the air grew a shade colder. The sky grew a shade darker. I shivered a bit at the change. Lost in my own thoughts, towering gray clouds had rolled in over my head. I hadn't even noticed. The sage on the bench began to shudder in a sudden wind. The fabric of my T-shirt began to whip against my skin. I looked again toward the safe and sturdy houses of my little town, far across the plateau and under that enormous churning sky in the rising wind, too far from town to shout and be heard by anyone I knew might love me or care about me in time to avoid whatever the storm might do. Well, I felt small. I felt infinitesimally small. It almost made me dizzy. How could a person, a creature, a thing, so insignificantly small as I was, hope to get by in a world so enormous as the world, the enormity of which seemed to suddenly register for me in all its hugeness? Well, in a time when I was kind of trying to figure out who I was, that smallness was maybe the biggest feeling I had ever remembered feeling in my life. It was bigger than any crush, bigger than any win on the kickball playground. I might have, oh, I don't know, despaired or something, but riding right underneath that feeling, there was another feeling, a quieter feeling, but a feeling just as big somehow. And it's harder for me to describe this feeling the best I can do, I think, is to say that even though I felt microscopically small before the hugeness of the storm, I felt seen, I felt noticed in spite of my smallness. I even felt cared for. The storm, as it turns out, was brief. I don't know what I feared might happen, but the clouds, over time, blew over. Those feelings, though, they didn't go away. Those feelings came home with me from that walk on the bench. I knew somehow that no matter how surrounded I might be at any given time by friends or family, we'd still be tiny, tiny against the grandeur, the enormity of the world and whatever lies beyond it. And I also knew that no matter how far I might find myself from friends or family at any given moment, I could never go so far that I wasn't somehow known. I wish I could describe it better, but I can't. What I can do is remember it. Maybe you've got a day like that, your own day out on the bench, a day in which you felt impossibly small and also maybe impossibly dear. I hope so. It's been important for me to remember my day on the bench. After all, there have been plenty of times when I've felt far away, felt alone. And the story of that day in my heart and in my mind and my spirit comes back to rescue me. Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. 
Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. It's been a pleasure to sit and chat about that beautiful Kim Whitecamp story with Trent Horton, one of our assistant producers. Trent, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Brian Tanner, uh, I wish you uh, back rubs aplenty. Uh, <laughs> worship and back rubs in church. <laughs> My back will be inclined at just the right angle. For <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Brian. We've been thinking about the comfort that comes from knowing that you're not alone, that you're precious, that someone you trust sees you and loves you just the way you are. But in a moment, we're going to turn the tables on that idea by bringing you an outer space mystery in which no one can be trusted to even be who they say they are, let alone to accept and love you for what you are. Can the passengers of a spaceship bound for Earth figure out which of them isn't quite what they seem to be before it's too late? You're going to find out in space. in space. It's coming up in just a moment. I'm Sam Bain. It's great to be here in the Appleseed Control Room. I'm always thrilled about what comes out of here. I'm talking to a couple of the folks behind the piece that you're going to hear right now. Uh, I'm talking with Marcus Richardson. Marcus, Hello. it's great to have you with us. Great to be here. And Clark Jackman, it's great to have you with us as well. Thanks, Sam. A couple of fantastic sound engineers. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear. It's a ship traveling from Mars to Earth. Uh, it's got a big cast of characters. I actually wrote the thing, and I love mysteries, so it's kind of a who's the imposter type narrative. And we were surprised to see that all of our names were cast members in there. <laughs> so that was fun. That was and fun. let's talk about that a little bit. Clark, you play the shipboard AI, right? That's right. They'll, they'll get it in a second when they hear the thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I play the, the AI. I was programmed with an ego. And so you'll find, when, as you listen to this story, how his ego slightly gets in the way uh, sure. of finding out the mystery of the, of the story. And while, uh, while the ego of the ship's AI is not the central conceit of the, of, of the piece, it does sort of come to play, right? There are human characters, of course, one of whom is Connor, who is your character, Marcus, right? Yes, it's because the personality of Connor we realize fit me best, uh, which <laughs> is kind of frenetic, kind of anxious and nervous in all of the best ways. One of the things, of course, that we always love about what you guys bring to us is just kind of the rich environment that we get to be in when we hear one of these radio dramas. It's partly about the lines and partly about the characters and partly about the story. But of course, an important part of that storytelling is the environment that we find ourselves in. And here, you're inventing an environment that's, you know, a spaceship bound from Mars to Earth uh, with a swimming pool. I was like, okay, well, let's write as many scenes as we can that provide interesting sound design opportunities. So yeah. therefore, there's a scene where a guy's playing a guitar just because there's a pool inside the spaceship. They go outside the spaceship. How do you des sound design where there isn't sound? Yeah. Well, there's so much to love. There's so much I love about it. And one of the things I love most about it is the premise. A group of college students on study abroad from Mars to Earth. You're going to hear it right now. The radio drama is called Sus, and here it is on the Appleseed. Passengers of Star Cruise Essex, this is Elio, your virtual captain speaking. Please only spacewalk in this sector at your own risk. There have been reports of rogue debris from the recent automaton insurrection. Not all AIs are cool, <laughs> like me. Thank you for traveling with Spaceflight International on your way back to the Blue Marble. Are you okay, Connor? Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, I gotta just stand up. We'll be right back. Uh, 
Elio, I feel like I can't breathe. Oh, how, how are oxygen levels? Hello, passenger. Levels are normal. More than enough for the remaining three days of our voyage. C could we get there any faster? <laughs> if you ask politely. Really? Uh, no. Hey, Connor, how are you? Hey, Valerie, good. Hey, everybody's going to the pool after this. Are you just going to mope out here by yourself? Uh, mm, probably. Uh, space travel just makes me nervous. You are always nervous. Come on, this is a pimped out cruiser. We got a soda bar, a pool with a hot tub, and there's only eight passengers. We practically have the ship to ourselves. You forgot to mention the state-of-the-art piloting and flight service AI. <laughs> Glad to hear they programmed you with some humility. <laughs> That's me. I mean, I guess there are some benefits to traveling on the university's budget. Come on. Let's grab a soda and head to the pool. Uh, fine. Yeah, fine. Um, yeah, I'll come watch. Hey, Elio, we won't run out of oxygen if I hyperventilate, will we? Oxygen storage is at... 178.9 kilograms. More than enough to sustain the seven passengers for the remainder of the voyage. Okay, we can go. Wait. How many passengers did you say were on board? There are seven humans aboard the Starship Essex. But I can see all the passengers on the monitors right here, including us. I count eight. <laughs> Incorrect. There are seven. Elio, could I get a list of the names of the passengers on board? For the privacy and safety of our passengers, I cannot divulge any personal information. What? Hey, uh, Connor, there's something else weird over here. W what do you mean? Well, this is the oxygen display, right? I'm only minoring in astronautics, but I'm pretty sure it's dropping and a little too quickly. 171.3 kilograms. It's probably a faulty display. This kind of ship has a lot of emergency fail-safes that have to be deactivated manually for levels to actually drop this quick. Unless oxygen is dropping and the life signs of one passenger aren't registering with Elio, Valerie. With the recent robot insurrections, do you think this could mean someone on board is a imposter? Honestly, Connor, I think we should just get a soda and not even worry about it. 166 kilograms. Uh, well, maybe it's worth a check. Okay, so I've written down everyone's names and the reasons they're traveling to Earth. First, there are the other three students that are traveling with us for the study abroad. There's Chad and Orion. Orion, yo, what are the odds of you with 360 belly flop, eh? Uh, one and one, bro, I'll do it right now. <laughs> Did you see that? <gasps> Orion, <laughs> I didn't want to get my hair wet. There's Celeste. Ooh, your crush. Nope. Nope, 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 nope. I've never said that. Ah, oh, but I can see it in your eyes, the way you look at her. Moving on. Then, then there's Professor Kaiden, who, if I remember right, is going to present a research symposium on Martian philosophical <laughs> contributions, specifically in epistemology. <laughs> I said, bury my drink. Hmm, no one can be that unironically snooty, right? You'd be surprised. How about the guy sunbathing in shades? Sloan, he's going to Earth because, uh, and I quote, the music scene on Mars has gone stagnant, my dude. Or something. The man talking to himself in the hot tub is Walter. Who knows what evils lurk in the depths of space. The robots will return with a vengeance. He hasn't said anything about why he's traveling. In fact, he hasn't said much coherent at all. Uh, straight up, kind of creeps me out. Mm, same. Uh, of course, there's Barry, the, the ship's steward and hey, chef. no running at the pool. Please, no running at the pool. He's basically a butler, and that alone makes him extremely suspicious. Fair. And that's everyone. One of them isn't human. <laughs> well, you're forgetting us. Right, but we know that we're human. Do we? I mean, if I didn't see you cry at the end of Toy Story 8, I'd be pretty certain you were an android. Are you serious right now? <laughs> no, but... You're making a lot of assumptions. We don't even know if there is an imposter. We're operating with very limited information here. That's fair. Well, I trust you at least, even if you don't trust me. Oh, um, thanks. Me too. 
Okay, so how do we determine who's a human when we don't really know what makes them different from a human in the first place? Um, how about we split up, then we can each go around and do human-y things with each of them. Y yeah, not sure what human-y things means, but uh, we, we could watch their breathing or uh, uh, check, the, check their pulse. <laughs> Just a casual pulse check. Not weird at all. I, I don't know. I'm spitballing here. Um... I guess we'll just gather information, you know, see if anyone looks suspect. Sure, yeah. I can set up your first appointment. Celeste! <laughs> and he's gone. <clears throat> so, Val, why are we in here? Well, Chad, since we arrive at Earth soon, I just thought we should take advantage of free soda while we still can. Like, why isn't Connor here? Oh, wait, did y'all break up? No. So you're still together then? We're friends, okay, Orion? He's too anxious for me. Ooh, he's in the friend zone, eh? I just wanted to hang out with you guys, okay? H how about a toast? Uh, toast to what? A toast to our safe travels, um, a great study abroad, and our human anatomy that makes drinking things possible. Yeah. All right, guys, you heard her. Uh, to our human anatomy, eh? Cheers! Well, I should get going. What? That was, uh, that was pretty weird. Yo, Chad, did she really just call Connor anxious? Uh, she didn't mean it. She likes him. He's just clueless to it. How do you even know that, eh? <laughs> you can see it in her eyes. Come on, bro. <laughs> Sloan! Sloan! Can I talk to you for a second? If you need to talk, my dude, sit and stay a while. I, I really don't have that much time. Take a breather. It'll be good for you. Okay. So, you're looking for someone, right? I, I didn't say that. Eh, you didn't have to. You and the girl have talked to every other person on this ship. Figured it was about time you talked to me. It makes you think I'm looking for anyone. That doesn't make sense. Were you spying on me? No one likes a paranoiac, my dude. Turn it down a notch. I get it. You think someone's not who they say they are. Maybe he's trying to sabotage the voyage. I dig. I'm picking up what you're putting down. I'm sniffing what you're stepping in. What? Dig this. The people acting strangest on board right now? That'd be you and your girlfriend. She's not... What are you getting at? All I'm saying is you better slow your roll. A little drop in oxygen, and you're off to the races with your conspiracy theories. It's not a conspiracy theory. I'm just gathering information. Eh, you do what you want. But you, you leave me out of it. Kid, uh, I have some information for you. Walter, your hands are so cold. What is your deal? Act weird and people leave you alone. Are you new to public transit? Um, that's not important. Uh, what info are you talking about? Someone on this ship is not who they say they are. Is that all? Uh, we already knew that. Oh, you and the spindly kid figured that out? Well then, let me be a little more specific. Wait, you know who the imposter is? Uh... Elio, your display still says the oxygen is dropping. Oh, does it? Hmm, how curious. Can you please stabilize the levels? I am sorry, but levels appear normal to the internal system. <sighs> I also cannot follow direct passenger commands concerning the homeostasis or trajectory of the Essex, unless they pertain to immediate danger, <sighs> such as impending collision with hazardous space debris. Not being able to breathe is pretty immediately dangerous to us humans. Hmm, <laughs> not as immediate as you might think. Uh, I just feel like an idiot. We're running around asking questions when I don't even know what we're looking for. <sighs> are, are you absolutely certain your passenger count was correct? Uh, <laughs> as certain as the accumulation of all human experience and technological development over centuries can be, there are life signs of six passengers on board. Wait, wait, six? Elio, alert everyone to meet me on the deck. Tell them it's an emergency. What's 
What's going on? I have no time to waste on shenanigans. Oh, is it someone's birthday? Chad, what part of emergency meeting on deck sounds like a birthday party to you? Well, it could be a surprise party, Celeste. Connor, I need to talk to you. Uh, tell me later, Valerie. Someone is missing. Uh, Walter, Chad, Orion, Sloan, Celeste, the professor. We're, we're missing Barry. Everyone stick together. Follow me to the kitchen. Barry! Please do not scare me like that. What are you doing in the walk-in freezer? I'm counting stock. It's literally my job. I think I know what's going on. Everyone get in the freezer. Excuse me? Do we have to? Just do it so the kid doesn't have a heart attack. Oh boy. Most of you could use a chill pill anyways. My boy Connor here. Oh gosh. Elio! Elio, can you hear us from in here? <laughs> I can hear everything. How many passengers are in the ship? Uh, zero. How interesting. That's it. Elio measures passengers by their body heat. That makes sense. Can we get out now, Ben Bod? This is cold even for me, eh? I'm not waiting for permission. So, so does this mean it was the freezer throwing Elio off the whole time? No, that doesn't make sense. The count was still off by one this time, even with Barry in the freezer, and the oxygen levels are still dropping too fast. Can someone please Whoa. explain what they are raving about? <sighs> The kid thinks he's a detective. Thinks he's determined there's a robot imposter among us. That's siphoning away our air supply. Oh, air supply. I love that band. <laughs> I didn't ask uh, you. Why didn't somebody tell me? I can contact HQ and get an override passcode. Fix the malfunction. So the robot imposter thing? There's no that's proof kind of I do believe you owe us an apology, young man. Wait, wait, no, I have proof. It's at the pool. Unprovable. Can it, Einstein? Proof is here in the pool. Can you help me with something, Sloan? If it gets this over faster. Connor! Sorry, are you okay there? Pull him out. Sloan is the robot. He knew the oxygen was dropping, even though I didn't tell him. I think you're the only one who noticed the air thinning. I'm not a stinking robot. You have tonight. We all just saw you crackle and fizz in the pool. I have an electronic voice box, you idiot. Now it's rolling. My voice will suffer until I get it fixed. And you're paying for it. But, but, uh, well, crap. Connor, he's not the imposter. What? How do you know that? Because it's you. What? I didn't want to say it in front of everybody. Walter told me. Kid, I'm so sorry you had to find out this way, but your memories are fabricated. No. You're not a human. No, that makes no sense. Yeah, he was a little sus. Connor, calm down. No, <laughs> no, calm down. No, I'm gonna go for a walk. Everyone, just leave me alone. I'm not playing this game. I want to be alone, Walter. Go away. Alright, look. I wanted to apologize. It's really unfortunate that you got tangled up in all this. I said go away! You need some space? Sure. Go get some space! What are you doing? What are you doing to my tether? Stop it! Easy, kid. You've been a great scapegoat so far. I hate for you to quit at the finish line. It was you. Yep. Nothing but a heartless android. 
I got Valerie to look the other way. And now, once you decide to float out in open space, the rest will have all the evidence they'll need. Help! Anybody? Help! <laughs> no one can hear you. Oh yeah? Elio, clear away this space debris. It looks hazardous. Ah, yes. Zero life signs detected within the debris. What? Deploying hydraulic arm. What? I guess he was pretty sus. Can you run that all past me one more time? Well, I went on a spacewalk, Walter attacked me, revealed himself to be a robot terrorist, and then I sort of just got Elio to fling him out into endless space. Oh, this is just crazy. I can't believe this all just happened. Of course, I... this did all happen after I pushed an innocent but rude musician into a swimming pool, destroyed his voice box, now I owe him another voice box, which probably costs about a year's worth of tuition. This is, of course, assuming that I don't get arrested as soon as we touch down because I don't have any evidence that the man I flamed out into open space was a robot. So, yeah, uh, that's fun. Connor, uh, I should have trusted you. And I shouldn't have believed Walter so easily. Uh, paranoia makes you do things you regret. I would know. Still, can I make it up to you? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, you wanted to grab a soda, right? <laughs> How could you tell? I can see it in your eyes. Shut up! <laughs> An outer space mystery Sus is the name of it. And it's been a pleasure to listen to, not only with you, but with some of the folks who made it. Marcus Richardson, who played Connor and wrote the piece, and also with Clark Jackman, who played the shipboard AI, and also who directed sort of the post-production efforts that brought it to life. Guys, it's such a pleasure to have had you with us today. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. We can't wait to see what comes next out of the Appleseed control room. And we had fun bringing you that story. And I'm glad we balanced a story like that about the horrors of not knowing who you might be able to trust with a few stories like The Lap, about the comfort that comes from knowing exactly who you can trust and that they treasure you just as you are. It's been a pleasure for me to be a part of this hour with you on The Appleseed, where great stories change your world. Join us again, won't you? You can find us at byuradio.org slash Appleseed by Googling The Appleseed Podcast or by downloading the BYU Radio app for ways to listen to all the great shows produced by BYU Radio. The Appleseed is pleased and proud to be part of that family of programs. If you found us on the podcast, leave us a review and rate us. It helps people find the show. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Seed.